Good morning, everyone. I want to welcome you into the house of the Lord this morning. Great to have you here. Good to see you. I know there are a lot of reasons why people come to church, and most of them are probably good ones, but I hope one of them is that you came to enter into the presence of the Lord and to praise Him for His grace and His mercy in your life, for the promises that He's made that we can trust in Him and count on. And so that's why we're here this morning, to celebrate Him and our position in Him as one of His children through Christ and His blood sacrificed for us. So to get us into the spirit of entering into His presence and worshiping Him, let's stand together and let's read responsively Psalm 100. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before Him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is He who made us and we are His. We are His people, the sheep of His pasture. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him and praise His name. For the Lord is good and His love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations.
You may be seated. Well, good morning. Some of you may be visiting or new here. My name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here at Three Lakes Evangelical Free Church. And it's good to have you with us here this morning. If you are new or visiting, just a little bit about our church. It's like we, as a church, want to be a community right, that, that strives to reach people with the gospel of Jesus and to grow to be like Christ and to serve others. That's kind of what we want to be about as, as a church body. Um, just a couple, a couple of announcements. Um, after, after the service this morning, we will have our, our quarterly kind of church meeting. So if you're a member here, just want to hear more about the church, I'd invite you to attend that. We'll, we'll try to get that started relatively shortly after the service. Um, you can, we'll finish up here. You can run downstairs, grab a cup of coffee if you want, but try to be back here um, by about 10.30 to get that meeting started if you're looking to attend that. Um, so this, this week, right, we've, we've seen some just signs that the hard world to live in sometimes, right? There's just brokenness and pain and suffering in the world. One of the things we saw was with the earthquake in Haiti, and so I want to invite up Greg Shanky this morning and just kind of share a little bit about some of the stuff that's happening in Haiti. Greg, come on up. Well, good morning. Um, as many of you probably know, um, about a week ago, there was an earthquake in southern <clears throat> Haiti. Uh, Vision of Hope Ministries works in northern Haiti, so we weren't affected, but this was very uh, significant for the people in uh, southern Haiti. <clears throat> um, that earthquake was stronger than the one that hit Port-au-Prince 10 years ago. <clears throat> It was a 7.2 magnitude. Uh, right now we know there's 2,500 uh, people that have died, <clears throat> 12,000 injured, and I know those statistics are going to rise. There's a big concern <clears throat> beyond what I'm just sharing uh, for a tremendous outbreak of COVID uh, and possibly cholera again. So uh, please keep this country in your prayers. <clears throat> I want to share with you just briefly about Vision of Hope Ministries' uh, response to the earthquake in partnership with Hosean International Ministries, um, which is um, our partner uh, ministry in Haiti, overseen by Pastor Caleb Lucian, uh, Enoch Lucian's uh, brother. Uh, tomorrow, we're going to begin loading a container in Fort Lauderdale with tents, tarps, medical supplies to be shipped to Fort Lauderdale via Cap Haitian. Uh, we're fortunate enough to have a network of uh, Christian churches and uh, organizations in Fort Lauderdale that are able to help us. We got a container from them, and so that's going to start tomorrow. We've already sent water filters and portable toilets to the area. Then also on Monday, we're sending a team of uh, doctors that are going to head into the remote areas 
with medical supplies. These are areas traditionally where the relief agencies that come in don't really uh, get into right away, but there's a lot of people that need help there. We have a structural engineer who's checking buildings for safety. Uh, and then on Wednesday, we're sending uh, construction supplies to start helping families rebuild their homes. And our goal in, within the next 60 days is to ship two 40-foot containers with lumber and metal roofing uh, to the area to help people uh, rebuild. And uh, one of the things I want to uh, point out to you folks is that our ministries are focused on empowering Haitians to help Haitians. So the things that I'm sharing with you are about Haitian doctors, Haitian structural engineers going in to do this work. <clears throat> and our goal is to help these Haitians, help those that are hurt to recover, heal, and rebuild. rebuild. And that's just our initial response. Uh, this is going to be ongoing. As uh, Pastor Caleb has said, like you, I'm tired of the challenging news worldwide. But as long as we're here, I want to... <laughs> Kids, are, that's Pastor Caleb calling. I have to wait. So he says, like you, I'm tired of the challenging news worldwide. But as long as we're here, I want to do all we can to assist others and point them to the one, our Lord Jesus, who can meet all their needs. This will be another challenge but we'll move forward with all the resources we find. So if you're interested in knowing more, uh, I'll be around. You can contact me. Uh, if you're interested in, in helping, please pray, and you can donate to this effort through our website at visionofhopeministries.org. Thanks. In addition to what Greg just shared and all that's happening in Haiti, of course, this week we saw all the fallout of what's going on in Afghanistan and the need for prayer there. And so we're going to pray in just a minute for all these kind of challenging signs that we do live in a broken and fallen world. Um, there's also, in the midst of that, like slivers of hope and the goodness of God, right? So many of you have been praying for, for Kent and Sherry Curtis, who are in very severe ICU um, with COVID, but they are they're home and improving, and so we see God's faithfulness to us through that. And so, in the midst of praying to God for help for the challenges, we just want to praise God for when He does good things. And so, with all that in mind, will you pray with me? Father, we we come and we are keenly aware of. that this world is broken, that it's not as it was meant to be. It's not as you intended for it to be. Um, but that because of sin and brokenness, there are hard things that happen in this world. We pray especially for, for Afghanistan this morning and for um, people who are out of homes there, people who are being persecuted there, especially think of the church there who is facing significant persecution. We should pray that you would you would give Christians in Afghanistan resolve to stand firm in the face of persecution. That you would give them safety and comfort in the midst of these challenges. You would give 
Christian leaders, their wisdom as they seek to lead their churches forward in the midst of all these hardships. We pray for the people of Afghanistan in general, that you would be with them, that you would provide stability and safety there, that you would provide for needs of people who are out of, who have lost their homes, who have, are just facing many kinds of trials and difficulties. We do pray for the people of Haiti as well, especially those in the south who are most affected by this earthquake and all the needs there, that you would, even in the midst of this trial and difficulty, that you would be at work in a mighty way to show your goodness and your glory through through your hand, um, through through outreaches like what Vision of Hope is doing and providing for needs, that people would see your goodness and care for them through ministries like that. That you would be glorified even in the midst of those hard times. We do praise you, God, for, for the way you've worked to bring healing to Kent and Sherry Curtis and more people as you continue to bring healing. We want to overlook the stories of goodness and joy even in the midst of hardship. We praise you for your your goodness, your kindness to us. You care for us in our needs. You walk with us through our hard times. God, as we, we come before you this morning, as we come to worship you, would you calm our hearts, still our hearts. We could focus on your word, the word you're going to sing. We could bring you Glory, we could praise you through the songs we'll sing, and we would draw closer to you through the word, your word that we will hear. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we continue our worship and song, let me read to you a short passage of scripture that sets up the next song we'll sing. This is Jesus speaking in the Gospel of John. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one can snatch them away from me. For My Father has given them to me, and he is more powerful than anyone else. No one can snatch them from my Father's hand. And the Father and I are one. You're welcome to stand or sit through this worship set. You do whatever the Spirit leads you to do.
Yeah. 
this morning as we come before your word to make that truth a reality to us. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As we continue this time of worship, one of the ways we would invite you to worship with us is through, through tithe, you're giving your tithes and offering. And we do want to say that it really is an act of worship. Like I'm about to preach on like what being a disciple looks like. And like one of the things that it involves is this sense of kind of self-denial. And when we give, it's a way of acknowledging that everything we have comes from God, and us giving is not giving something that we earn ourselves, but it's of giving back to God. And it's a way to express that truth. And so we just invite you to, 
to join what we're doing here at the church through your giving of tithes and offerings. Now, if you want to give, you can drop your um, giving in the either the two boxes on the back wall, or you can give online at tlefc.org slash give. So in, in 2008, 1,200 students at Yale University enrolled in a class that enrolled in a class called Psychology and the Good Life. So 1,200 students, that's like one-fourth of the entire student body at Yale. And after that initial offering, they never offered the class again because it was so popular that it messed with the enrollment for all the other classes offered at that time. So they just stopped offering it. And an online synopsis of that class says this. The class featured lectures on things people think will make them happy, but don't. And based on that synopsis, it's not a big surprise to me that that class was so popular. For students at Yale, like getting into Yale had probably been a goal since like at least middle school. Like Yale's nobody's like safety school. Like if you got into Yale, it's been like a goal for a long time. And so they get into Yale, like they've achieved that goal, and then like everywhere they look, like pop culture is telling them that. The college years are supposed to be like the best years of your life. Like you have to live this kind of carefree, magical, joyful existence for four years. And now, like those those students are living the dream. Like they're in their dream school. They're living in the supposed to be the best year of their life. Like everything should be perfect for them. They should be having the time of their lives. But most. Right, if not all of them, are probably finding that that's not entirely the case. Like, they are not, it turned out, blissfully happy just because they're in Yale. And they don't understand quite why they're not so blissfully happy. Like, why aren't they as happy as they should be? And the professor of the class, one of the things she says is this. She says, our intuitions about what will make us happy, like winning, like winning the lottery and getting a good grade are totally wrong. Our intuitions about what will make us happy are totally wrong. Perhaps there's not a, a more clear example of this than, than Tom Brady. He now has he's won seven Super Bowls, right? like, which is unfathomable and more than a little annoying. And, <laughs> but it's but like great career success, right? Like, no one can argue great career success. And according to several online sources, he's worth over $200 million. Like, and, like, those online sources, like, who knows where they get that number from, but, like, regardless, he has plenty of money. And according to ESPN, he's the, the 31st most famous athlete in the world, which when I first saw that, I thought it was actually kind of low. But he's actually the most famous American football player it's just that, like, all the people above him play, like, more internationally renowned sports, much as soccer players and whatever else. Right? So he's, he's incredibly famous. Right? Not only that, like, according to another list online, like, he's the most attractive male athlete of all time, which I'll take their word for it. But, right? and, and if that wasn't enough, right, he's, he's, he's married to Giselle, like, a literal supermodel who, who, according to more online sources, has a higher net worth by herself than he does. And so then they have three obviously beautiful children 
right? Like, and then last year, after years of winning Super Bowls in New England, he decided he had enough of New England and forced his way out. And like, he had practically every NFL team like begging him to come play for them. And he eventually chose Tampa Bay, and as the Packer fans among us know, like, eventually led them to a Super Bowl. And like, so he's had the kind of power that rarely NFL players have. Like, he could dictate where he wanted to go play. If it's not an option, many players get in terms of their contract. Like, see, Brady has everything. Like, money, fame, power, good looks, athletic talent, career success, a beautiful wife, a seemingly happy family. Like, in terms of what, what the world tells us should make us happy, that's it. And yet, in an interview in 60 Minutes, he said this. Why do I have all these Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is what is. I reach my goal, my dream, my life. Me? I think, God, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't. This can't be what it's all cracked up to be. He has everything the world tells us someone should want. And yet he's saying things like this. So clearly, like, the conventional wisdom, the worldly wisdom of what leads to a happy, fulfilling, good life doesn't work. If it did, Brady would live every day on cloud nine. But the things that we think will make us feel happy and fulfilled don't. Maybe you've Experience that in your own life. Maybe you finally got your dream job, or you finally bought your dream house, or you finally met Mr. or Mrs. Wright, and you finally got that one thing you've always wanted. The one thing you thought would bring joy and fulfillment to your life. And when you got it, like you felt this maybe flicker of happiness for a day or two, but then after a little while, like your happiness kind of fades back to where it was before you got that thing. You get that same feeling that Brady expressed when he said, it's got to be more than this. It can't be what it's all cracked up to be. And the good news is, according to the Bible, like there is indeed more than this. There is another path than what the world has to offer. What the world says is the path to the good life. Jesus offered us a different, better path to fulfillment and joy. But we need to be aware that that path is often very counterintuitive. It does not seem like the path to the good life. Yet Jesus assured us that it actually is. So we see that in today's passage in, in Luke chapter 9. We're going to read from 23 through 27 in just a minute. If you have a Bible, I invite you to Turn there. If not, you can get one in the seat in front of you or the verses will be on the screen. Just as a reminder, like last week we, we looked at how the disciples had finally come to the realization that Jesus was the Messiah. Like he, they finally confessed, like, Jesus, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. But then instead of praising the disciples and sending them out to spread the news, Jesus warned them, like, don't tell anyone. And the reason he did that is because for the Jewish people, like, they thought the Messiah was going to be this military conqueror who would evict Rome and restore Israel as a 
powerful nation. But Jesus immediately explained his disciples that he would not be that kind of Messiah. Instead, he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. So Jesus it would be a suffering Messiah. He would, not, he would give his life to overcome not just Rome, but to overcome our ultimate enemies of Satan, sin, and death. And then in today's passage, he invites his disciples, us, right, to, to follow him, to join him in that. But he wants us to carefully, with sober judgment, consider what that actually means. So even as he invites us to come after him and to follow him, he lays out both the cost and the benefits of accepting that invitation. Let's look at these verses together. Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 23. Then he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Truly I tell you, some are standing here, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. So Jesus in this passage is giving us a picture of what it will look like to be a disciple of his, to follow after him. And he is laying out both the cost and the benefits of discipleship. Like he's saying, like if you're going to be my disciple, here's what you need to know. Both the good and the hard. He says in, in verse 23, whoever wants to be my disciple. This is what discipleship looks like. Discipleship is another word for follower, basically. Right? And so, he's like, if you want to be my follower, if you want to come after me, like this is what it looks like. And just so we're clear, right, the Bible doesn't have a category for someone who has trusted in Jesus for their sins to be forgiven, but who isn't a disciple. Who isn't a disciple right? It's not an option to say, well, I believe in Jesus to forgive my sins, but that discipleship stuff seems kind of hard, so I'm not going to do that. Right? Like, that's not an option the Bible gives us. Right? To trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins is to be a disciple of Jesus. And to be a disciple of Jesus requires three things, according to verse 23. Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple must, one, deny themselves, two, take up their cross daily, and three, follow me. All these three things together kind of make up the earthly cost of discipleship. And so often in life, if we want to persuade someone of something, like we focus on all the good aspects of that thing. If you go to the, a used car dealership and you're looking at a car, you can, like, the dealer's not going to be like, well, this car had an accident in 2018 and like, this model's known for having power steering issues and whatever else. Like, they're not going to lead off with that. Like, instead, like, this used car salesman's going to extol the virtues of the car. And he'll either like, let you figure out the bad stuff on your own later or like, he'll be forced to like, 
he will wait till he's forced to tell you all the negative aspects. And I like hope that you've already fallen so in love with the car that the negative stuff won't dissuade you. And it can be really tempting. Right? When we're, we're talking about what we believe with someone who doesn't follow Jesus to do the same thing. We can just kind of focus on extolling the virtues of how great following Jesus is, like how great it is to be a Christian, all while trying to hide the fact that life is still really hard sometimes. Even as a Christian, there's still hard, dark moments in life. But when we do that, we'll either come across as inauthentic, because the person already knows of our hardships and our struggles, or we'll set up that person for failure should they start following Jesus, expecting everything to be great once they follow Jesus. We shouldn't just lead off with the good and leave out the bad. And Jesus doesn't do that either. Instead, he wants everyone who considered following him to have a sober, clear-eyed view of what being his disciple will entail. And that the first thing then is it involves denying oneself. To be a follower of Jesus, to be a disciple, is to deny your own earthly wants and desires in order to seek to fulfill the will and teachings of Jesus. Now, that's not to say we should all become ascetics and like go live in huts and eat nothing but rice and beans and wear the same plain clothes every day and devote like every waking second to either Bible reading or prayer. That's not what it means to deny oneself, but what it does mean is that the fundamental question, like how do we use our resources, how do we use our time, how do we use our money, how do we use our talents, the fundamental question changes. Instead of asking, like, like what use of my time will make me happiest? Or what can I spend my money on that will make me feel good? Or how can I use my skills so other people are impressed by me and build up my ego? Like, instead of asking those questions, the question when we deny ourselves becomes, how can I use my time to love others and to glorify God? How can I use the money God gave me to bless Him and glorify Him? Like, how can I use my skills to serve others and advance the kingdom of God? Like, those become the fundamental questions when we deny ourselves. When we deny ourselves, we see our, our time and our talents and our wealth. Not as things that we have earned and are, can therefore use for our own purposes. When we deny ourselves, we see our talent and our time and our wealth as given to us by God to be used for His purposes. If you're going to be a follower of Jesus, if you're going to be a disciple... The first question we must ask in any situation can no longer be, what is best for me? That cannot be the first question we ask. Instead, we must deny ourselves. But it's not enough to merely deny ourselves. Lots of people deny themselves for a number of causes. There's this story of the Milwaukee Bucks superstar, Giannis Antetokounmpo, when he was a rookie before everyone knew who he was. He was you know, still making plenty of money, but not money he's making now. But he was spending like, almost all the money he made back to his impoverished family in Greece. And one day he realized he had spent so much money back to his family 
He didn't have enough money for cab fare to the stadium. And so he starts like running the two miles to the stadium until like a couple of fans recognized him and offered him a ride. And I just like I love that story. Like just the image of an NBA player, like the NBA where it's all about image and flashing wealth. It seems like sometimes like an NBA player having a bum a ride because right? he sent all his money back to his family back in Greece. Right? I love that story, but as great as it is, right, that's not all that Jesus means by denying yourself here. Senator Kumbo like, clearly denied himself the comforts of an NBA lifestyle for the sake of his family. Or like environmentalists might deny themselves certain conveniences for the sake of saving the earth. Vegetarians might deny themselves meat for the sake of saving animals. Vikings fans may deny themselves hope of ever seeing their team win a Super Bowl for the sake of... Well, I don't know why they would do that, but they do it for some reason. But, but the point is, like, just denying yourself is not enough. It is a requisite first step, but it is not the only step. Jesus called us to not deny ourselves first, but then also to take up our cross daily and follow him. And for us, as we hear those words, here, take up your cross daily, we have a close connection of the cross with Christianity. Like some of you right now are wearing crosses as jewelry. Like, or you have crosses hanging in your home, or you have painting, or you have bumper stickers, or you have, like, you have this connection of the cross with Christianity. But at the time Jesus says this, the disciples don't know how Jesus is going to die. So when he says, take up their cross, like, all that comes to their mind in that moment is the cross is a brutal tool of execution used by the Romans to show their power and authority over a subjugated people. Right? The cross is an instrument of death. Nothing more. And we, like, we tend to throw around the phrase, like, oh, that's just my cross to bear. Like, throw it around far too flippantly. If you have an annoying coworker, you'll say something like, yeah, he can be hard to be around, right? but, but working with him, like, it's just my cross to bear. And, like, I don't want to downplay the trials of having an annoying coworker. Like, I've been there. Not here, for the record, but like, I've been there. <laughs> but like, I just want to submit to you that like, if you've used that phrase, like, if that's just my cross to bear in a similar situation, then maybe you haven't thought enough about what the cross is. A cross is not some mundane, annoying trial. The cross is an instrument of death. Joni Erickson Tata, who, she's a quadriplegic, so she knows a thing or two about trials and suffering. She puts it this way. Don't think that the cross is simply the wheelchair or an irritating job or an irksome mother-in-law. The cross is the place that you die to sin and live to God. So the call to take up a cross and follow Jesus is nothing short of a call to die. To die to sin, to die to selfish desires, to die to self. And to choose to live for God instead. And notice, right, this is a, a daily decision. Jesus says, take up your cross daily. For followers of Jesus, it must be a daily choice to take up our cross. 
There are, there are parts of the Christian life that are, are one-time, once-for-all decisions. Namely, like we place our trust and faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins one time, and in that moment, all our sins, right, past, present, future, they're all forgiven in that one moment. We don't need to live in constant fear that well, maybe I forget to repent of a certain sin or had a bad couple of days, so maybe I'm not forgiven anymore. Like, that's not how it works. Like, you make a one-time choice and all sins forgiven. Our, our justification, our forgiveness of sins was a one-time event. But our choice to follow Jesus and to live the life he called us to live is an ongoing, daily choice. We, we must be willing to put our old selves with its earthly desires to death every day if we're going to follow after Jesus. And that choice is hard. That choice can be painful. It can be costly. It is, after all, a death. But, after ensuring his disciples have a, a clear-eyed view of what following him means, Jesus goes on to assure us that it is all worth it. In verse 24, he says, Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. And we can be quick, I think, to read verses like this and to just jump exclusively to heaven and eternal life. And that's certainly true in part. It is certainly true that dying to ourselves and living for God is needed for eternal life. But I think Jesus has more in mind here. When he, he speaks of saving our life. Like he has in mind not only our eternal life, but also our life on this earth, here and now. When I first came, my very first visit here, when I kind of started doing the interview process, someone asked me, what are some books you've read recently that have had an impact on you? And one of the books I mentioned then was a book called The Cross Before Me. And the subtitle of that book is Reimagining the Way to the Good Life. And the author described that book as an, basically an extended meditation on this one verse. And I have no idea whether like, mentioning that book helped me get the job here. Like, it probably had nothing to do with it, frankly. Like, if I didn't say something totally crazy, it probably wasn't going to matter. Right? But like, that book has continued to have a big influence on how I think about the Christian life. And here's how, the, here's how the authors summarize their main idea in the book. They said, the thesis of this book is that God's way to human flourishing is the cruciform way. The good and beautiful life. A life not only saved by, but also shaped by the cross. This is the unique and unheralded path to the life we have always wanted. We believe the cross has something to teach us, all of us, about what it means to live a fully human life here and now. The cross is God's wisdom for human flourishing. Not only is the cross the instrument of our salvation, it also sets a pattern for the whole art of living. Like, this is not some health and wealth, prosperity, like just trudges, you get everything you always wanted. Right? But this is, it reforms our idea of what the good life is and then leads us into that good life. All I have to say, well, the earthly cost of being a disciple 
is high, there's also earthly benefit to being a disciple of Jesus. But the message of the Christian life is not, it's not, well, this world is broken and terrible and you're going to be miserable. But grin and bear because one day you get heaven. But that's not what the Bible teaches us. The Bible tells us that by being a follower of Jesus, like, though it involves sacrifice, though it involves dying to self, like, being a follower of Jesus is the path to a fully human, joy-filled, satisfying life here and now. The cross-shaped life is a path to the good life, even on this earth. It just turns out that we've like, badly misjudged what we think will bring joy and happiness which is exactly what Jesus says in the next verse, in verse 25. He says, What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? I think Jesus here, like he's inviting his hearers to just indulge their wildest fantasy for a moment. Like, just imagine for a second, like, if you got everything you always thought you ever wanted, what would that be like? Right? Imagine you suddenly had a Tom Brady-esque life. You had money and fame and good looks and career success and a supermodel wife. Like, how great would that be, right? But you would like Brady still end up saying, there's got to be more than this. And so not only is there a benefit here and now of being a disciple of Jesus, but there's also a cost here and now of refusing to be a disciple of Jesus. You can give your life to accumulating riches and power and fame and happiness only to discover that doesn't actually make you happy. That none of those things actually leave you feeling satisfied and fulfilled. Only to discover that you've used your short breath of a life chasing after something that becomes harder to achieve the more you want it. You've used your life. You've wasted your life chasing something you can't actually get through the means you think. Adam Grant, who's a psychologist at the Wharton School, in the book called Think Again. And in that book, he tells us that research shows that the more people value happiness, the less happy they often become with their lives. He says, when we hunt for happiness, we overemphasize pleasure at the expense of purpose. If you, you refuse to become a disciple of Jesus, if you choose to live a life chasing after the world's values, not only are you rejecting the promise of eternal life that Jesus offers his followers, but you're actually rejecting your best chance at happiness and fulfillment in this life, here and now. And there's a part of each of us that knows this. Like I said earlier, like we've all had that experience where we've gotten the one thing, the new house, the new car, the new job, whatever, like the one thing we thought would bring us happiness, only to have it leave us feeling empty. When we chase happiness for happiness' sake, we find that we can never quite catch it. And the tragic thing is, right, so many people refuse to follow Jesus 
because they'd rather chase after a worldly happiness they can never quite catch. They've bought into the lie that the world knows the way to find happiness. So they live a life in love with the values of the world and ashamed of Jesus. And in verse 26, Jesus tells us the results of living that life. He says, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. If we chase after happiness by following the world's values, if we refuse to be a disciple of Jesus because we want to chase fame and wealth and power, then Jesus tells us that he will refuse us at the final judgment. And this is ultimately then the the eternal cost of refusing discipleship. It's unfulfilling. You will find life here and now if you chase after the world's values. The even greater cost is your eternal destiny. If you reject the invitation to follow Jesus, He will reject you for all eternity. And you will spend eternity reaping the consequences of rejecting the God of the universe. On the other hand, in verse 27 we read, Truly I tell you, Some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. There's a lot of debate about what exactly this verse means. I tend to think it's like referring to the transfiguration, which we'll look at next week when Peter and James and John, they see Jesus surrounded by the glory of God and they hear God's voice confirm Jesus as his son. Other people think that this verse might refer to the resurrection or the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, and like they, they might be right. But what really matters in this verse, that this verse means that for those of us who are followers of Jesus, we will one day see the kingdom of God fully realized. And that ultimately then is the eternal benefit of discipleship. And that there is coming a day when Jesus will return, when he will usher in a new heaven and a new earth <clears throat> He will reign as king over the new heavens and the new earth. The kingdom will be fully realized and he will be acknowledged by everyone as king. And there will be no more pain, no more suffering, no more sin, no more death. And everyone who has trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, and everyone who has become his disciple, will live with him in glory forever. Here's, here's the incredible thing. Even though one day Jesus will return and he will usher in the fullness of the kingdom of God, while we wait for that day, he has given us a mission, a purpose. He doesn't leave us to just twiddle our thumbs and wait for his return. He has given us a mission to set up little, little outposts of that kingdom here and now. To make it clear to the world around us that God reigns as King now in my life. And He calls us to invite other people into that kingdom by becoming a follower of Jesus. A minute ago, I quoted Adam Grant, where he said that one of the reasons we aren't happier is that we chase pleasure instead of purpose. And as far as I know, like Adam Grant's not a Christian, I think he's a secular guy. 
But I think in that moment, he's 100% right. We chafe pleasure for his own sake. We come up empty. But when we pursue a purpose, especially a God-given purpose, we will find satisfaction and joy. And God, in desiring to see us live a satisfied, fulfilling life here and now, has given us the purpose of our life, of this life. He has given us the mission of advancing his kingdom by inviting others to become followers of Jesus so that they can experience the benefits of discipleship both here and now and for all eternity. So if you're here this morning and you've never decided like, to follow Jesus, I just invite you to do so. Like, not just because it will get you into heaven, which it will do that, but I want to invite you to follow Jesus because he is your creator and he knows the best life for you to live. He knows what's best for you. He designed you. He made you to live a fully satisfying life here and now on this earth. A life not of chasing selfish desires that will never satisfy, but a life of purpose that fully satisfies. And even though like the way of finding that fully satisfying life is counterintuitive. It is indeed the path to the good life. A life of purpose and joy and fulfillment. And I want to see you live that life. And so follow Him. And for those of us who are here who already are disciples, followers of Jesus, I just encourage us to remember like this is this life is not just about sitting around, twiddling our thumbs, grinning and bearing it through some pain and suffering, waiting for heaven. Yes, like this life is hard. Yes, this world is broken. But God has given us a purpose. A purpose that involves dying to ourselves, denying ourselves, and dying to our selfish desires. A purpose that involves using the time and talent and money that God has given us for the sake of advancing God's kingdom. When we embrace that mission, when we deny ourselves, when we give of our time and money and talents in a self-sacrificial way, we will find that we are living the joyful, satisfying, good life that He made us to live here and now. So my encouragement is just, Church, like, let's be about that mission. Let's pray. Father, we come, we confess that there are many times that the, the things of the world, wealth and power and influence, like, they... They pull at us, they, they cry out, and we desire them more than we desire the life you have called us to live sometimes. God, I pray that you would work in our heart to make the things of the world seem less and less appealing and to see the things you have called us to seem more and more and more appealing. 
God, you give us eyes to see what you would have us see? Would you give us mind to think the way you would have us think about what it means to live a satisfying, fulfilling life? Would we not buy into the lies of the world, but would we trust what you tell us in your word? Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, I invite you back about 10.30. We'll meet here for our meeting after church. And as you go, as a word of benediction, pray that you would go trusting that God's vision of the good, satisfying, fulfilling life is far better than anything the world can offer. You are dismissed.